You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Looking at the I am statements of Jesus, where he introduces himself to his listeners. And so if I was to introduce myself to you, like we just had our greeting time not too long ago, I would say something to the effect of, I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a brother. I'm a pastor here at CA. Nice to meet you. And so when, when we see Jesus introducing himself to his listeners, when he's using these I am statements, he's making statements about his identity. And what we've seen over the last few weeks um, is that Jesus has described himself in these ways. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I am the bread of life. And last week, I am the light of the world. And so make no mistake, these are also claims of divinity that Jesus is making. He's using the same phrase, I am, that God used to describe himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3. And so through these statements, Jesus is revealing to his audience that he is in fact God in the flesh, the second member of the triune God. And these weren't just subtle statements he was making, like, I am Jesus, uh, I'm your friend. Like, the, the crowd, those who were listening, would have understood that Jesus was making reference back to Exodus chapter 3. So, for example, when he talks about uh, how before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is essentially saying that he, he, was, he was existent before Abraham was 2,000 years prior. He's claiming transcendence over time something that would only be true of God. So the Jews then pick up stones to throw at him because they believe that Jesus was blaspheming, that he was making a claim to be God. And this is what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. And so today, as we take a dive into John chapter 10, we're going to look at one, uh, another one of Jesus' I am statements where he says, I am the door of the sheep. And so there's a lot going on in this passage, so we're going to rewind a little bit back to John chapter 9 for a moment, and this is where we see some of the context starting to unfold. So Jesus has just healed a man uh, who was born blind from birth. So he, what he does is he meets this man who's born blind from birth, he asks to be healed, Jesus spits in the dirt, makes some mud as one does, puts it on his eyes, and the guy is healed. So... I, think, I wonder if this is where we get the statement, just rub some dirt on it, like when we get injuries or ailments, like it would make sense to me. And so what's the response? Well, the man rejoices, he worships Jesus, again, Jesus isn't rejecting his worship of him, yet again, another indication that Jesus is in fact God, and he follows him. What a story, right? Incredible. The only thing is, not everyone was rejoicing at this miracle. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they were actually disturbed that Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they ridicule the man for his testimony, and they throw him out of the synagogue. So John chapter 9 concludes with these words. So some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So in other words, the Pharisees are accountable to God. 
They know the scriptures, they serve as leaders, and yet they're guilty of getting in the way of the work that God is trying to do among the people of Israel. And so as we turn the page to John chapter 10, the setting doesn't change. Just because there's a chapter division doesn't mean that Jesus is all of a sudden somewhere else. This is the same crowd, the same listeners, the Pharisees are hanging on every word Jesus is saying. And in fact, his next words are directed at the Pharisees. So would you stand with me as you read John chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us what this text means, that you would show us what it means that you are the door of the sheep and that in you uh, we, we are saved. And in you there is pasture, there's protection. And so, Lord, we pray that you would increase today, that I would decrease, and that your name would be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So Jesus was challenging the leadership of the Pharisees through this parable. Now here's why. If you're not familiar with who the Pharisees were, they actually regarded or saw themselves as the gatekeepers or the doors to the kingdom of God. They had an earnest desire for holiness. They wanted to see the nation of Israel embody a level of holiness that was typical of priests so that they could then become distinct from the surrounding nations and get to God through observance to the law. So how they did this is they added extra biblical laws on top of God's commandments. So these weren't in scripture. They just thought, okay, like we want to be as holy as we can. We're going to like add like more categories and more stipulations on top of what's already given. And it sounds maybe good in, 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 in theory, but in practice what happened is it became increasingly legalistic and people were oppressed. And so... Um, for instance, they would add 39 categories for what constituted work on the Sabbath, right? You could only walk like a certain number of steps. Uh, you know, there's just ridiculous things that like they couldn't do. They created more rules about what to eat, what to wear, how to pray, uh, just to name a few things. So extreme like micromanagement. And then they would judge people according to like how well they followed uh, these extra bonus laws. And so they wanted to honor God, but they missed the point. So in reality, this led to behavior modification. This led to external appearances of holiness that was devoid of love and grace, which is the whole point of the law. And so this was the way of religion, not the way of Jesus. Now here's how Jesus himself describes the religious leaders of the day in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are, f are, are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So they look good on the outside, but it's death on the inside. So under the Pharisees, relationship with God became about performance, self-righteousness based on works, and strict rule-keeping. And this was oppressive, damaging to the people of Israel. The teaching and the lives of the Pharisees served as poor examples and actually served to to damage the flock. And, and, And it was an attempt to shut the door on the kingdom of heaven to those whom God was seeking. This was religious corruption. And this is what Jesus was calling the Pharisees out for. Where they brought death and destruction, Jesus brought life and life to the full. Jesus is essentially saying to them, I've got news for you, boys. You're not the gatekeepers to the kingdom. I am. I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. So what does this mean? That Jesus is the door of the sheep. Well, three things. Jesus is the door to salvation. He's the door to security. And the door to supplication. So that's my alliteration. If it doesn't make sense, he's the door to eternal life. He's the door to protection and also to provision. So let's talk about this. Salvation. You see, we speak of opportunities as doors, don't we? Right? We look back on past seasons. We can see how God has opened certain doors for us in our lives. And, and we've been blessed by those, right? And, and we've, we've seen how maybe God has closed other doors in our lives. Well, one, one example of a door that God opened up for me about eight years ago was right here at CA, where uh, I was one of the first people to go through the very first internship program that we had. Uh, started with middle school youth. Following that, uh, became pastoral apprentice, first kind of pastoral apprenticeship program that we ran. And I believe that God has blessed that decision. He opened that door. I walked through it. And, you know, I've, over the last eight years, I've had uh, great opportunities to serve in various ministries here at CA. Now, you're probably grateful for certain doors that God has opened in your own life. You're probably grateful for certain doors that he has closed as well, in hindsight, right? Where in the moment, maybe years ago, you're like, oh, God, why are you closing this door? Why is this opportunity not becoming available? But then when we zoom out, we see the bigger picture a few years later, we're like, That's why. Thank you, Lord, that that door never opened. Thank you for closing it. It's also probably doors that you've walked through that you regret as well, as all of us have. Well, today, we're presented with one ultimate door, the most important door that we'll decide to walk through or not. And this is the door to eternal life, the door that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So as the door, Jesus is the way by which we must enter the kingdom of God. Salvation is found in Jesus. If you want to come and be a part of the sheepfold of God, to be a part of the family of God, you have to go through Jesus. There's no getting around it. The thing is, we live in an age of religious pluralism, don't we? where the script says that all religions lead to God. While they may look different, while beliefs may vary, at the end of the day, each path, they eventually all reach the same destination that is God. It's just different pathways to get there. But against this, Jesus claims exclusivity, that he alone is the door. Not a door, the door. 
Now, you guys remember Peter, one of Jesus' disciples? This is the guy who denied Christ three times, went back to fishing when Jesus died because he felt like all his hope was lost. Well, after he encountered the resurrected Christ, when he saw that Jesus had beaten death, he became a bold church leader, wrote a couple books of our New Testament, went on to help plant churches. He proclaimed the way of Jesus everywhere, everywhere he went. Now, here's what he says about Jesus in Acts 4.12. It says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Peter witnessed Christ rise from the dead. Jesus is God. Jesus has authority over life and death. This is why he alone is the way. No other God can raise the dead. This is why we as Christians believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Pastor Cam's going to tell us a little bit more about this in a few weeks. Jesus is the door to eternal life. This is what Peter is affirming as well. Now, as we think about like the function of a door, like what is a, a door for? Well, it's a gateway from one domain to another, right? So maybe when you woke up this morning, you went from your bedroom to the hallway, and then you went from the hallway to the bathroom, uh, from the bathroom back into the hallway, out the front door. You're, you're moving from one, one area to another. This is what a door is for. And so th this is essentially what has happened for us who are in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are transferred from one domain to another. So here's the words of the Apostle Paul, who gave his own life to Christ when he encountered him in a powerful way after persecuting and executing followers of Jesus for some time. He had a radical transformation in his life. He says this in Colossians 1. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So how do you go from the domain of darkness to the kingdom? Through the door that is Jesus. How do you go from guilt and shame to the forgiveness of sins? Through the door that is Jesus. How do you go from death to life? Through the door that is Jesus. There is no other Savior. There is no other door. But the reality is, we're presented with so many false doors claiming Savior status, aren't we? We live in a culture that bombards us with things saying, I'm the way, this is where you're going to find life, this is where you're going to find protection, this is where you're going to find the good life. And many of them are appealing, they're tempting, but ultimately they lead to our destruction and our disappointment. And so I want to spend some time going over four common doors or false saviors. I've got a couple of these from Pastor Matt Chandler, so I'll be borrowing some of his material. The first is hedonism. So hedonism says that life and life to the full is found through happiness and pleasure. That the goal of life is to, to feel good, to live free from constraints that limit our freedom. This is what uh, Pastor Marty talked about last week even. We simply need to do whatever feels good as long as nobody is harmed. We need to look within to discover who we are and express ourselves without anyone or anything getting in the way. The problem is, this overpromises and underdelivers. I don't think there's a quote that I have shared more in the last few years than this one, which paints a really grim picture of the results of a culture like ours bent on hedonism and limitless freedom. This is what Mark Sayers says. He says, our private worlds are in crisis too. 
We see the rise of anxiety and mental health disorders, falling IQ levels, epidemic loneliness and social disconnection, widespread online bullying, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred. Addiction to drugs, food, technology, sex, gambling, and relationships are widespread. Obesity is rising, becoming a full-blown health issue. In the West, poor mental health is now normative among emerging generations. Life expectancy in the West's two most powerful nations, the United States and the United Kingdom, has fallen for the last three years running. With all these factors in play, we can see how many are having their moment of doubt, for the post-Christian revival seems to be running aground. He goes on to say that we're, we're drowning in freedoms, but we're starving for meaning and relationships. That we actually have to remember the wisdom that we need to sacrifice some of our freedoms and pursuits of pleasure to gain meaning and relationships. That freedom isn't purely freedom from, but we need some guiding things uh, that provide freedom to. This is positive versus negative freedom. Uh, so stream of philosophy. You can look it up when you get home. And so the reality is hedonism is inherently narcissistic. It leaves little room for sacrifice and ultimately leaves us feeling a few physical pleasures at the expense of lasting purpose and fulfillment. And as the quote I just read suggests, hedonism is a lie that isn't working. The second door is the door of self-salvation. This is where rule-keeping, morality, and self-effort are the keys to salvation. This is the dominant system of most world religions. If you only do good enough, if you follow the rules, you'll make it. And the funny thing is that <laughs> most people actually form their moralistic view of salvation based on what they're good at based on their strengths so that they can pass through, so that they can pass the test. And so it's not objective, it's subjective. Now when you believe you're the door, you tend to, yeah, you tend to measure your morality according to that which you excel in. The thing is the church isn't immune to moralism and self-salvation. We can just kind of like turn this on its head a little bit and say, oh, you know, if, if only we work hard enough for God, like he's going to love us more. He's going to like, you know, have more approval for us. This could look like needing to pray a certain way, needing to pray a certain amount. Uh, this could be seen through like behavior modification or serving or tithing. The list goes on. We can easily turn uh, what we do for, for God into like almost like wanting to receive brownie points from him. But this isn't the gospel. We don't need to save ourselves. This was, this was the, the type of observance that the Pharisees were guilty of. Strict observance to the law to be made right with God. We simply need to walk through the door to salvation by putting our faith in the work of Jesus. That when he said it is finished, that means we don't have to strive. We don't have to do any number of things to get close to God. We simply receive and we say, thank you, Jesus, for this eternal life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for going to the cross. I put my faith in you. I die to my flesh each day. I want to pursue you each and every day, just as these people in the baptism tank said. All right. What's behind door number three? It's the economic savior. This is the green pastures made of dollar bills. We live in an expensive part of the world. There's no denying that. 
we can understand why this is a formidable false savior in our context. Many do struggle to get by, and it is true that a certain level of income is needed to live sustainably in this city. But this isn't what I'm talking about. You see, if God is our money, we'll never have enough. Very few people are content with what they have. They think, if only I can hit a certain dollar figure in my account, I'll finally live the good life. If only I make that much, I can protect myself. Provides a sense of control. But that control isn't as stable as you think it is, right? Markets fluctuate. Crises happen. Those fraud scams online are getting really intense and clever. For others, money isn't as much about security as it is a status symbol. It doesn't even have to be money. It could just be stuff. Consumerism says that we will be saved from mediocrity and boredom if we have enough stuff, if we have enough toys will be respected or admired by what we possess. Now, John Mark Comer, he says this. He says, the French sociologist Jean Baudrillard, I don't know if I pronounced that right, only did French up to grade 10. Jean Baudrillard has made the point that in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. Wow, what a quote. Shopping is the new dominant uh, system of living, challenging Christianity. Our pursuit of money, stuff, status, it reveals something deeper about our souls. We can't solve the longing of our souls through materialism. We can't take our stuff with us when we die. It's as simple as that. But Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. All right, door four. This one looks really good. A lot of people walk through this one. So let's find out who's there. Let's play a knock-knock joke. You ready? Okay. Knock-knock. Paul. Politics. <laughs> wow. I think you guys liked that more than the first service. I debated leaving it out because it was so corny. I'm sure that was the cheesiest joke you've heard all month, but uh, you're welcome. So political saviors. This is what the disciples initially thought Jesus would be. One who would deliver them and the nation of Israel from Roman oppression through political and military might. But Jesus didn't establish religious freedom for his followers, nor did he even try to. In fact, becoming a disciple of Christ was an invitation to persecution and martyrdom. So when we buy into the belief that if the right political party or the right leader is in power, we'll achieve an earthly sort of utopia, we're falling for an illusion. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't get involved in politics or seek to advocate for policy changes? No. Am I saying that you shouldn't have political leanings or convictions or do your research or vote? No. Am I saying that you shouldn't put your hope in worldly power? Yes. This might be news to some of you, but the Christian faith doesn't fit neatly into a certain political party or even slide toward one end of the political spectrum. Now, before you email me, you should know that tomorrow I leave for vacation for three weeks. So I probably won't get back to you until the third week of August. If you want to talk to someone else, we've got plenty of pastors on staff here. Now, here's what I mean, okay? 
Christianity doesn't fit into a political party. According to historian of early Christianity, Dr. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, the church was characterized by five things that made her stand out from the empire. Here they are. Number one, the church was multiracial and multi-ethnic with a high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines and there was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Number three, it held human life as sacred and resisted things like infanticide and abortion. Number four, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. And five, it was nonviolent, both on a personal level and a political level. So if we look at these, the first two positions are typically liberal positions, while the second two are traditionally conservative positions. The last one just doesn't fit into any. <laughs> And so thus, if these are historically five tenets that like, the church has held to from its early days, Orthodox Christianity doesn't fit neatly into political categories. And so what's my point? My point is our allegiance is to Christ and not to political saviors or powers. Before we're Canadians or before we're citizens of any earthly nation, we are first citizens of heaven. This is what the book of Philippians says. And so come what may, we can rejoice because our hope is in Christ and not in earthly national leaders, not in the outcome of an election, not in the laws of a land. You see, the humanist idea of utopia is a myth, but the offer of eternal life is a reality and a gift. Jesus is the door by which we can be saved. So my question to you is, which false savior are you trusting in? Which false door are you knocking on? Which false door are you walking through? What lies behind those doors ultimately provides a fleeting sense of security and food that leaves you feeling hungry. But true security and supplication are two of the benefits that come with salvation to Christ. So let's talk about this. As the door, not only is Jesus the way to salvation, but he is also our source of security and supplication. The sheep who enter through Jesus, they find pasture, life, and abundance, our text says. Jesus doesn't provide the dead grass of false saviors. We've seen a lot of dead grass lately with the amount of sun we've been having. He doesn't provide dead grass. He provides rich, green grass that feeds us, nourishes us, sustains us. His way does not lead to death and destruction. In Jesus, there is life, intimacy, belonging, identity, and protection. His sheep are nourished, satisfied, provided for, and protected. But remember how the Pharisees saw themselves as the doors or the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God? but in reality, they destroyed the sheep? Well, when Jesus is talking about the thieves and the robbers who climb in by another way, he's talking about them. In verse 10, he says, they come only to steal and kill and destroy. These false saviors are no shepherds at all, but instead they harm the sheep. They don't enter the door. They transgress boundaries of protection to steal and harm the sheep. Now, it's important to note that as we look in our text here, John 10, 1 to 10, there seems to be a switch up that Jesus does midway through where he switches kind of the, the imagery going on. So let me explain. In verses 1 to 5, the setting Jesus describes seems to be within a village where multiple sheep flocks would be kept in a courtyard setting and there would be a gatekeeper at a physical door who would allow various shepherds to come to the door, call their sheep by name, lead them out, and that would distinguish, you know, which flocks were which. And so this is why it makes sense that when he talks about 
a, uh, a robber or a thief coming in another way. It's, he's not going through the gatekeeper. He has to go in deceptively, jump the fence, throw a sheep over the fence to steal. I don't know how they stole sheep back then, but anyways. Um, this, this seems to be what he's talking about in verses 1 to 5. But the interesting part is Jesus seems to switch the setting, starting in verse 7, to the wilderness, the countryside. Now, the wilderness was often a place of danger. There were wild animals, flash floods, cliffs, harsh conditions that shepherds had to protect their flocks from. And so with um, what, would, what, what a pen would look like in the countryside, in the wilderness, is it would have stone walls and no gatekeeper. Instead, there would just be an opening in this uh, stone-walled enclosure, and the shepherd would actually act as the door. So you can see him kind of sleep in there um, at, the, at the door. And that, this is what the shepherd would do. He would literally sleep across the, the entrance uh, at nighttime, acting as the door. And so the sheep would be led out to pasture through the door that is the shepherd, and then they would be led back into the pen for protection, for safety. So Sam's going to talk about uh, I am the good shepherd next week. The thing is, it's hard to not talk about the shepherd when the shepherd himself is the door. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do that for a little bit, and Sam will pick up the pieces next week. So maybe, um, with this picture in mind, we can see how Jesus, as the shepherd door, he keeps the flock safe, right, from outside danger, outside threats, and allows the sheep out uh, out of the pen under his supervision. So the sheep go in for protection, out for pasture. They have to go through him for protection and for pasture. Now maybe for you, you've walked through the door of salvation, but you're in a season where you don't feel supplication, you don't feel the security of God, you don't feel protected, provided for, you don't feel this green pastures, like this is, this is all a hoax. Like uh, maybe Jesus is the way to the Father, but I sure don't feel his provision. I sure don't feel his safety. You don't feel nourished, protected. Instead, you feel weak, exposed, vulnerable, attacked. Well, here's the truth. Jesus doesn't necessarily protect us from hard seasons, but he protects us in them. It's not that we'll never face trials or difficulties or hardship. It's not that we'll never have desert seasons or experience pain, but it's that in the midst of your pain, Jesus comes alongside you. He walks with you. He sustains you. He uplifts you. He identifies with you. Why? Because he himself has walked that path. He endured physical pain. He experienced abandonment from his friends. He experienced false accusations. He knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be mistreated. He experienced hatred and rejection. Just the other day, in my own devotions, I was reading Luke chapter 4, and I find out that right after Jesus is in the desert, uh, being tempted for 40 days, he starts his ministry. He goes into a synagogue. He preaches from the book of Isaiah. And, um, and then after his sermon, the Jews want to throw him off a cliff. I mean, how's that for the first day in the pulpit, right? Hey, let's go find the nearest cliff and throw this preacher off. Like, we don't agree with what he's saying. Uh, and so Jesus knows what it's like to experience pain, to experience rejection. He knows suffering, and he promises not to abandon you when you encounter difficulties of your own. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's when we are weak that he is strong. His grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in what? Weakness. 
Psalm 23, the shepherd doesn't remove the valley of the shadow of death for the sheep. Rather, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is with us in the valley. When death and shadow surround us, he's protecting us, comforting us, strengthening us. We need not fear evil because the Lord is our protector. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death. Through Jesus, we enter, we find rest, protection, provision, life, and life to the full, salvation. So as I conclude, if you're not yet a Christ follower, but you've seen the emptiness of these false saviors, you've knocked on some doors that don't lead to life, and you've tasted that, you've seen that it doesn't provide, it doesn't sustain, there's an invitation to walk through the door that is Jesus himself. But I want to let you know that Christ is already pursuing you. In Revelation 3.20, this is what Jesus says. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, Jesus has already taken the first step. He's a few steps ahead of you. He's knocking on your door. He wants relationship with you. He himself is your creator. You're created for relationship with him. And so the question is, will you open the door to him? Allow him to introduce himself to you before you walk through his door. Maybe today you're like, oh man, I got to hear more about Jesus. Got to figure out like who he is. I want him to introduce himself to me a little bit more. Hey, we're going to be starting up Alpha in the fall, in the beginning of October. Maybe you need to walk through the door of Alpha. Maybe you've been a follower of Christ for quite some time. Uh, You felt stale. Maybe something's stirring in your heart. For you, maybe you need to walk through the door of baptism where you say, yeah, my allegiance is for Christ. I identify with his death and his resurrection. Believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God. Maybe that's what you need to do. What door is God leading you to walk through today? Which doors are, is he saying, hey, don't walk through that one. Hey, close that one. Get out of that room. It, it doesn't lead to life. Jesus is the door of the sheep. In him, there's salvation your security, and your supplication. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the door of the sheep, that in you there is life, that in you there is not just salvation, but, Lord, protection from the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Lord, that there is nourishment, that there is provision. Jesus, as we're going to learn next week, we thank you that you laid your life down for the sheep. You as the good shepherd. Lord, we pray that you would show us which doors we need to we need to seal off. Which doors we need to run from, Lord, and, and would you just show us that you yourself are the door to eternal life. And so, God, I just pray for my friends today. Would you prompt them towards yourself? Would you draw them closer to you? And so, Jesus, we thank you that in you there is life and life to the full. We don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to look left or right and search the world because you, Jesus, came for us. You've overcome the world. And so, Jesus, we thank you. Uh, for all you've done for us. We praise you. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.